Hopefully by now it is clear what Galatians is all about as from the outset we have been sort of leading into this truth, the exact truth that Paul is writing about in such a way that it is plain to see how urgent he is to get this message across. It's very noticeable what is on Paul's mind and what is on Paul's heart right from the outset. As right from, this, from the very beginning of this letter, he gets straight to the point. Again, drawing your attention back to verse 6 of chapter number 2 where he says right away, I am astonished, I am stunned, I am astounded that you are so quickly deserting, leaving him who called you. In the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. This is the, the stage, so to speak, that sets the, the heart of Paul so fixedly on this point. Describing what is the gospel, but also describing why there is no other gospel at all. That's sort of the context and why it's so important. This point that Paul is trying to make, it's so consequential, it's so momentous that he has no time to talk about anything else. Of course, as we've been establishing, this particular letter of Paul, the letter to these churches in southern Galatia, comes on the heels of Paul's first missionary journey, where he just had spent a few months with Barnabas preaching the same gospel to those same churches. And that he learns that some nefarious guys known as the Judaizers were making some waves, causing a ruckus by, yes, preaching, quote-unquote, another gospel. They were threatening to undo all that Paul had just done by delivering this good news to these churches, preaching to them what would be known as the Apostles' Doctrine. And now they're learning that this is being undercut by these Judaizers, these legalistic Jews preaching something other than Christ. And of course, that's the point that this other gospel is no other, it is no gospel at all. Because there is no other thing that we could call the gospel other than what Paul has just been describing for so, uh, for so long already. And he's going to even describe it even more as we go further. There is no other gospel other than the announcement that Jesus, the Son of God, has given himself up to die for sinners so that sinners might be delivered from sin and death. That's the gospel. And he says that in verse number 4. Again, drawing your attention back to chapter 1. I'm not going to re-preach that. (laughs) Chapter 1, verse 4. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the good news. That's the only message that could ever qualify as the gospel, as we defined it. Glad tidings, good news. That's the only news that could be in any way, shape, or form considered good. And why? It's because this message of the gospel doesn't come from man's own conjecture, man's own invention, or man's own imaginations. That's what Paul has been establishing. He didn't make up this message. He wasn't taught it. He was delivered this message by God himself. That's what most of chapter 1 concerns. But also, as he's going to get into, uh, and also as we spent time already on, neither is this gospel concerned with what man must do in the sense of earning what it says. From first to last, 
This announcement of the gospel is all about what God and Christ has done. Already has finished already on the behalf of, in the stead of, sinners. This is what's gripping Paul's thoughts. Because little else matters except for declaring how sinners, people who are wicked and caught in all kinds of wickedness and wrongdoing, can be brought into a right standing with God the Father. That's what he he is so concerned about communicating and expressing. And of course, this right standing with God the Father is, a, is, a, is not a possibility through works of the law. That's what he's been saying already. It's only a possibility through what? Through faith. As he says, verse 16 of chapter number 2, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. All of which to say Galatians is a book all about justification. That's what this, this whole entire letter is essentially about. If you want to be reductive, we can be a little bit reductive. We want to condense it to one point. Paul is expressing and articulating what it means to be justified in the sight of God. One commentator put it this way, quote, Galatians exhibits the most full and enlivening display of the grand doctrine of justification probably ever given to the church. And indeed, I would agree and we've spent a number of occasions sort of describing what justification is or, or trying to use words and phrases to get you to understand what it means to be justified. But I, perhaps it would be beneficial to give this term a proper definition, so to speak. After all, Paul uses that word justified four times in a span of two verses in verses 16 and 17. He's going to use it. He's also going to describe it. He's going to illustrate it in a number of different ways throughout the rest of this letter. With each occurrence, the word justifies carries, you get into your mind's eye, it carries this image of a court of law. It's a word that comes from that sphere of life, a court of law. And you can imagine a convict standing ready to receive his sentencing, ready to receive whatever verdict is coming his way. But instead, when that gavel strikes the judge's desk, he doesn't hear condemned, he hears something else. He hears a different word when that gavel strikes He hears the word not condemned. He hears the word justified. He hears the word cleared. That's essentially what this word means. It means quite literally to be made right or to be declared righteous. You get in your mind's eye a a convict being ready to be sentenced to perhaps life in prison or perhaps sitting in the executioner's chair because of something that he has done. But instead of that, instead of a life rotting away behind bars because of something he has done, instead he goes free. He is acquitted. That's what this word conjures up. That's what this word justification conjures up. And you see, the point is is that you and I, we, we are that criminal. 
We are that wrongdoer who are standing, yes, before the God of all glory and the God of all heaven. We are the ones who stand rightly in the wrong, deserving of punishment, the punishment that's coming for us. We stand before that judge as guilty, good-for-nothing sinners, and there's no escaping that. There's no sort of ounce of getting around that or getting out of that, except for when that voice from the gallery shouts. The voice says, take me instead. On me alone be the guilt. Which, of course, is the voice of your Savior and your substitute, Christ, alone. He is the one who bears all of your condemnation. Who bears all of your punishment for what you have done against God the judge. Yes, Jesus himself, the very son of God. Who through his life and death and resurrection made this a possibility. He made it a possibility for you to be made right with God. Where before it was utterly impossible. And how did he do that? Again, he took the penalty that your sins deserved. Sinning against an infinitely holy God bears with it a punishment that rightly comes down on those who are unholy. But instead of you and I feeling that penalty, instead of you and I bearing the weight of what that would mean, Jesus offers his own self to be penalized And punished and yes even crushed in your stead on your behalf. And therefore with that penalty being fully absorbed and assumed by him. You and I are no longer under the weight of that verdict. We've been given a new verdict. The verdict of justified. The verdict of not condemned. The verdict of you are made right with the father. Why? Because Jesus was crucified. He was, again, you have to keep this at the heart of all of what Paul is talking about, but also all of what the Bible is talking about. That Jesus was crucified as the guilty party, so that the guilty ones might live freely in the very grace that God is dispensing. And that's what that word justified should conjure up in our minds. That incredible scene of a criminal going free, not because he's done anything. Again, to further Paul's point that he's going to get into in this little section. That convicted criminal, he is truly guilty, thoroughly guilty. Whatever wrongdoing, whatever infraction he has done, he is convicted And he is rightfully so guilty and very deserving of whatever punishment is coming his way. But also as he stands there, he has zero ability and zero room to put himself into sort of a more favorable position or condition in front of the judge. The criminal has no position to make a deal with him. He has no leverage. There's no amount of law, uh, deal making or promise keeping that the, 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 the criminal can declare in order to make that verdict go away. The sentence is pretty much done almost. He's guilty. He deserves punishment. 
And yet, when that word of substitution comes, when that word from the gallery comes that says, yes, give me the guilt, all he can do is what? Receive the gift of pardon that is offered to him. He can't work into some better standing. He's guilty. Through and through. This new verdict that comes his way is coming his way purely and merely as a gift. And that's sort of what makes this gospel the gospel, so to speak. It's sort of a take it or leave it offer. Jesus offers himself in your stead and he says, here, I've done it. And sometimes we have the bad habit of closing his hand and says, no, I want to at least do something The gospel, you see, is that announcement that we've already been suggesting and already been expressing. It's the announcement that someone else has done everything necessary to secure your right standing with the God of all wisdom and grace and and holiness. He has done everything necessary to bring you into a right relationship with almighty Jehovah. That's the verdict that rings so loudly and so truly when Jesus declares on the cross, it is finished. Your right standing, my friends, is a done deal in Jesus. Which leaves the only thing left then for criminals or sinners is just to receive that offer by faith. To believe that that offer and that that accomplishment was done for them. You see, that's this beautiful, amazing truth of justification. That is something that God in Christ has done already. And yet, until you realize that this uh, amazing uh, feat of glory and grace that Jesus accomplished on the cross, subsuming all of your guilt and all of your sin while remaining completely righteous in and of himself, and yes, leaving all of that sin behind when he went to the grave, yes, that amazing accomplishment is for you, right where you sit. This is not just a theory. This is not just a, a, an imaginative thing that I want you to get to hope in, that I want you to feel all fluffy and nice and happy about. What Jesus has accomplished is not just something that is done for the world. Yes, it's done for you specifically. The gospel is good news for you just as you are. It's not a demand. It's a gift that you are called to, yes, you are invited to receive as true, as a settled verdict that has been given to you on behalf of what Jesus has done already. And this is what Paul is getting at what he mentions in verse 16, that we are justified by what? By faith. By complete, open-handed surrender to what God has already done. Faith is not a white-knuckling of things that we have done. It's an open-handed acceptance of what has already been done for us. That's what this faith is and what it looks like. You know, I had to mention it. My favorite Scottish theologian from the 1800s, Reacius Bonner. 
He says this, quote, in one of his books. Faith does not come to Calvary to do anything. It comes to see the glorious spectacle of all the things done. (laughs) And indeed, we don't come to the foot of the cross to start tilling the ground and start doing our own thing. We come to the foot of the cross to bow in awestruck wonder of all that has already been accomplished. And specifically, that glorious spectacle of things that were done was done for you right where you sit. The gospel, you see, is best understood when we personalize it, as Paul does in verse number 20. Did you notice that? When he says, he's talking about what the Son of God has done, and by faith, he's going to live in what the, but live in faith in according to what the Son of God has done, as he says at the end of verse 20, who loved me and gave himself for me. My friends, that's not just Paul writing it for himself. You and I are called to read the same thing as well. Who loved Brad and gave himself for Brad? That's the truth of the gospel. It's not a faceless entity, a faceless figure, uh, sort of an analog figure that Jesus died for. He died for names. He took names to the cross. Yours and mine. The faith that justifies is the faith that can say that. That all of that horrible, wretched violence that occurred at Golgotha, that was for me. That was for you. Jesus' head being splintered by thorns and his hands being pierced by nails and his side being gashed by a spear. It was for you, my friends. Right where you sit. And Paul is, I think, getting all of that before this congregation. But he's gonna, because he's going to get into the thick of some, uh, some pretty weedy doctrine, if I can say it that way, as he proceeds in the next couple of verses. Galatians is somewhat of a diatribe. This letter, as we've said before, is not like Romans. It's not a surgeon's scalpel that is so meticulously thought out. It's like a butcher's cleaver. Paul is writing, and you can imagine Paul is just writing, and it's a flow of thought almost. And here, he is just writing so passionately about this very truth, because he doesn't want this truth of justification that you sinners that are, yes, definitely guilty, are made cleared, are made righteous, because of what Jesus has accomplished. He doesn't want that to be misunderstood or misconstrued. And so, he asks Himself a question, so to speak, about this very doctrine that he's just spent some time establishing. Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor, if in our progress to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Okay, so stick with me. He's going to 
begin by unpacking this doctrine of justification by asking a a question, perhaps in anticipation of or in direct opposition to what the Judaizers were saying, what they were preaching. And essentially, you can think of this question like this. If we preach justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from, minus anything that we do, and yet we are still found to be sinners... Does that mean that Jesus is a minister of sin? And the word there literally is deacon. Is Jesus a deacon of iniquity because he has not given us a list of things to do? You see, for the Judaizers, you, you can sort of supply their argument. All this talk about Jesus. All this talk about grace, all this talk about forgiveness that Paul is known for and for offering for free. And he's not making these Gentiles do anything. He's not even making them eat kosher. He's not even making them get circumcised. All of that is doing is it appears to not be making people better. Paul's congregations are still filled with sinners. This is... A couple months removed, perhaps, this letter from the, the, the books of Corinthians. But you can imagine if Corinthians was written by this time, the Judaizers would sure be using that as a test case. Paul's churches are still filled with sinners even after he preached his gospel to them. So obviously, obviously, clearly, uh, it's unmistakable then. You can imagine the Judaizers saying this. There must be something wrong with Paul's message. He's leaving something out. There's something that he forgot. That's the gut reaction, isn't it? If you talk about forgiveness offered for free for too long, church, church folks get all squirmy. And I'm, I'm not trying to pick on you this morning. I've, I've been there. I've, I've been in churches where this happens. You talk about it too much and people start shifting their seats. Okay, you're saying it's free, but... It can't be that free, can it? Like, where's the catch? That's how we think, right? There's no free lunch. There's, you know, nothing in life is free. <laughs> and so you can, you can apply this directly to what the, the Judaizers in Paul's day, where there was no catch. Paul is saying, there is something that is offered to you for free in Jesus. And where there is no catch, we love to supply one, don't we? So the Judaizers sidle in. Yeah, it's free in Jesus, provided that you also do X, Y, and Z. We love to supply the missing fine print from the gospel. We love to do that. That's sort of our, our default mode. This keeps it within bounds that we can control, don't you see? If there's fine print, then we can see, oh, okay, I get it. I can control that. I can see grace. And the freedom of what Jesus has offered in and of himself takes all of that control from right out of our hands. What God in Christ has done, he has done already. And it's not up for debate. It's not up for redefinition. And it's not up for renegotiation. Again, to establish the gospel and the truth of it at the heart of it. What? Jesus died for your sins and for mine and that he was resurrected for our justification. Paul says in Romans 4.25. That is a work that's finished. That's a work that has no terms and conditions. Unlike those car commercials. There's no fine print at the bottom of the commercial screen explaining all the ways that you have to meet that offer. 
The gospel is an announcement of justification in Christ. And it doesn't suddenly become untrue if those who believe in it are found to be sinners again. If we are found to be sinners, even after that message is preached to us, the answer is not to change the message by loading it up with a glut of fine print. And you have to understand, that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were saying, look it, there's something wrong here. It must be something wrong with the message. Because people aren't changing. People aren't getting better. They're still doing their same old thing. They saw how folks were found to be sinners. And so they set about to change the message of the gospel. Which is the same thing as saying that there must be a problem with the message of the gospel. My friends, there is absolutely no problem with the message of the gospel that declares what? I've said it multiple times. Say it again. It's the message of free justification of the ungodly in and because and through what Jesus alone has done. That's the message. There's no problem with that message. Where does the problem lie? With us. We're the problem. We're the ones who can't get out of our own way. We're the ones who keep stumbling and fumbling over ourselves. We're the ones who are sinners to the core of our being, guilty through and through. And what is true when we, by grace through faith, put our trust in that work that Jesus has accomplished for us, and we receive this gift of righteousness as ours, what's still true of us? We're still sinners. You see, this is... We're going to explain, I'm going to to teach you some Latin in just a second. Because in one very true, very real sense, by faith we are justified in the sight of God. Therefore, when he sees you, he sees the righteousness of his son. Praise be to God. Colossians 3, we are hidden in the shadow of God's son. What an amazing accomplishment that Jesus gives Yet, in another very true, very real sense, you perhaps know this perhaps all too well, we are still sinners who sin very ingloriously, who fail constantly, and who daily showcase that we are desperate for Christ and his spirit. You see, that's what faith does. Faith in what Jesus has accomplished brings us into this sort of, this place of tension. And that's, I think, part of the problem. We don't like the tension, but that's what faith does. It brings us into this tension where we live in a state of already, but not yet. When you repent and believe in the gospel, you are cleared of the penalty of sin. Why? Because Jesus already bore that penalty on the cross. You're also free. From the power of sin because the Holy Spirit is now living inside you. And yet at the same time we have to regretfully say that we are not yet out from under the presence of sin because we are still creatures of this earth. And this earth is fractured and broken. And is yearning and crying and groaning for a redeemer. 
And when Jesus returns one day soon, we will, oh, praise be to God, we will finally be free from sin's presence once and for all and for good. But until then, my friends, we live by faith in the already but the not yet, in the already cleared and justified, but the not yet glorified. It's Latin. Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously justified and sinner. That's who you are this morning. That's where you live. That is your every day. And it's, yes, a day of tension and frustration because you can't seem to get out of your own way, as Paul talks about, and he explains this so well and at length in Romans chapter 7. The things that he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things that he doesn't want to do, he keeps on doing. How many of you does that describe? You don't have to raise your hands. That's where we live. We live in the already, but the not yet, in the simultaneously justified and sinner. That's who we are. And you can understand then that changing the message of the gospel because people are found to be sinners is what? It's just a blind and ignorant uh, refusal of that reality and also a bloated confidence in our ability to be good. Changing the message of the gospel... By supplying all sorts of fine print. What's that do? It's really just the foolish belief that we can wipe out sin's presence. And merit God's favor by something that we can accomplish. By our activity. You can understand why Paul is so upset. Why he's so irate. And again, this is, this is silly and it's not in my notes, but you can imagine when Paul is writing Galatians, I just imagine it's like, you know, he gets a letter through email and then he's fiercely writing his computer and he's just writing and writing and writing. And he doesn't, he doesn't think to like recheck that email, he just hits send. It's just the first draft of all of his gut reactions to a problem that he's trying to solve. And he's just writing, as we said before, he's writing in all caps. He's trying to get this message across. We can't change the gospel. That's foolish. Because what happens once we start messing with this announcement of free justification in Christ? What happens if we begin toning down that message by adding all kinds of fine print because people are found to be sinners? Well, Paul tells us, verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. That is, I prove myself to be a deserter of the truth. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness, catch this, were through the law, then Christ Died for no purpose. Meddling and messing with the message of forgiveness and justification. Freely given in and through what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. Causes us to lose the message altogether. When you add all of these additional qualifiers. And you add all of that glut of fine print like the commercials. And you, uh, what you do is you are effectively rebuilding what Jesus died to dismantle. Romans 10 verse 4, Paul says this in a very clear, very amazing way that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
He's saying, that's what he's saying here in just a slightly different way. And to insist otherwise, to insist that we can be justified uh, uh, is to just, by a matter of what we do, as a matter of, of Jesus plus something else, what is that doing? That's reconstructing that old edifice of the law that Christ put an end to. When he died, he put an end to all of that means of justification. So you have to understand here what Paul is here saying is essentially that salvation by faith plus our works is essentially, you can picture it, it's the essentially the furious effort of man to put back up the veil that Jesus tore down. Remember in Matthew 27 where Jesus said it is finished and he gave up the spirit and then it says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. What does that mean? It means, as we talked about all through the book of Hebrews, that the way to the Father is unobstructed. It's cleared for sinners, no matter if you're Jew or Gentile alike. The way is open because of what Jesus has accomplished. And yet, what do we do sometimes as Christians? Because that seems a little bit too free. That seems a little bit too easy. Let's hang that curtain back up. You got to do this. Got to make sure you have this just right. For Paul's day, you got to be circumcised. You got to eat kosher. You got to be doing all of these things according to the law. Basically, it puts all of the onus on us to put the uh, to separate the veil that Jesus has already torn down. You see why Paul is so frustrated? And then he ups the ante even more in the next verse when he says that changing or couching that message of the gospel in any way is the same thing as saying that Jesus died for no reason. Verse 21 again. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, through what man can do according to what God has revealed in the law, then Christ died for no reason. What's the point of the cross? If we can solve the problem of sins, of sin by ourselves. If our efforts, if our energies are effective in in freeing us from sin's presence, then the cross of Christ is pointless. And maybe you should, and maybe I, I did, wince and shudder at even saying that. But that's what we do when we live by faith plus works. That's what we do when we say it's partly about what Jesus did, but I, I have some things to hang my hat on too. We're saying that Jesus and what he did wasn't enough. His grace needs a little bit of, little bit of our grit. His work needs a little bit of help from us. You see, Jesus plus Something else always results in the focus being given to the something else. (laughs) The Judaizers were saying that justification and salvation was a matter of faith plus circumcision and law keeping. And unless that law was being kept, the sinner's claim to justification was no good. We talked about that in Acts chapter 15, right before the Jerusalem council. They were saying no one can be saved unless they do this. So those who were saying that. And that wasn't true. Their justification was null and void. It didn't count. And all of this does is what? All of this accomplishes is to turn the free gift of the gospel into a wage. You do this, you get that. 
And this, again, twists the gospel into something that it isn't. And it makes what God holds out as a gift into something that you are due, into something that you are owed because of something that you have done. And all of this does, as Paul has just hinted at, all of this does is nullify the grace of God. The whole nature of the gift is ruined once we attempt to make it at least a little bit expensive. Therefore, in order to not ruin the free gift of justification in Jesus' death and resurrection, we should reconsider, however slightly, what it means to be justified. I think the courtroom scene is still valid, and it's still true, and it still holds so much weight. And whenever we think or read or come across that word justified, we should think about that. But it's also so much more. Because you see, to be justified is more than just a criminal receiving a verdict of acquitted It's a matter of life and death. And that's the point. It's a matter of the dead being raised to life. As Paul says, verse 19, notice, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is saying here is truly groundbreaking. You and I, we are dead to the law as a means of salvation. Why? Because by faith, we have been crucified with Christ. And when he died under the law, according to the law, what happens? He is now therefore delivering us from the law as a means of being made right with God. As a means of being justified. Trying to be justified by works of the law is a fool's errand. Because the law's standard is what? You know, it's perfection. 24-7, never abating perfection. And who's done that? Who can meet that demand? Well, only one person in the history of the universe ever did that. And it's Jesus Christ himself. And when he ascended the cross and gave himself up to die for your sins and for mine, when he died and resurrected, he held out his life and his death as a free gift of salvation for all all who believe. Therefore, now, this crushing death of Jesus on the cross is our death. The death that we deserve for failing to live up to God's standard. And Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection as we are raised to newness of life by faith alone. You understand here that this declaration of justification is not just a matter of a legal announcement. It's a resurrection. Justification is being raised to new life. Think about that courtroom scene again. The criminal receiving the verdict, not condemned. He's not just able to walk and go free. You would say that he's been given a new lease on life. And indeed for us, we've been given a new life. And the point is that all of this occurs by faith alone. 
Martin Luther, that great reformer, he says, quote, For in the righteousness of faith, we work nothing. We render nothing unto God, but we only receive and suffer another to work in us. That is to say, God. What an announcement. And it corresponds exactly with what Paul is saying. That here, now, by faith, when Jesus died, I died. When he resurrected, I resurrected. And when now I am justified, I am justified because of that. I'm made right because of that. And now I can only receive what this one Jesus has done and also what the Spirit is going to do in me. And that's what he's going to get into in the next several verses and chapters. But the point is that no criminal, no sinner could ever take credit for the new life he's been given. A criminal walking out of that courtroom where he's been given that verdict of not condemned would not go out. Look at what I have done. He would be insane. We would call him a fool. No, he, his new life is only because of what someone else has done for him. And when we walk out of that door, the same is true for us. The same is true for us. No amount of our doing, no amount of our activity could ever make this verdict more true. It is true for you. You see, all of our doing in the life of faith is merely the overflow of what's already been done and what we receive by by faith in Jesus alone. That's what he's going to get into. But what are you clinging to this morning? What are you banking on when you stand before that judge? If you had to stand before the judge of the universe this morning, what would you bank on as what makes you right with him? Are you pointing to something that has already been accomplished? Or are you trying to fuddle around and and mess around with all of your resumes of of goodness and things that you have accomplished? Are you trying to make your justification a matter uh, uh, that you're taking into your own hands? Are you receiving with an open fist what Jesus has already done? My friends, there's only one way to newness of life and indeed everlasting life. There's the way of Christ. It's the way of death and resurrection. That, my friends, is how you are justified and made right with God. I pray that you cling to that announcement. This no other gospel today. Let's pray.